Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh-generation witch. I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked to die. We are back on Conspiracy Normal. It's been um, it's been a couple of weeks, and what an eventful couple of weeks that it has been. How you been, Rob? Oh, I've I've been well, very well, thanks. And we've got Alyssa sitting in with us right now. Hello. Hi, Alyssa. How you doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Luke is off playing Pokemon right now, <laughs> so he's uh, he'll he'll be with us later for the. Uh, for the second show we're going to record tonight but uh, tonight we have on richard dolan and someone that we had the chance to meet when we were up in minneapolis about a couple of months ago and we're going to talk about his book uh, ufos for the 21st century mind but in the intro here i just kind of wanted to go over a few things that have happened over the last couple of weeks um on the last show I had said that I wanted to talk about Dallas and what happened there, but 
last Sunday, and we're recording this on July 24th, last Sunday on July 17th, there was another shooting of policemen in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And this was done by a man named Gavin Long, who, like the shooter in Dallas, was also a trained uh, soldier. He was a Marine instead of uh, Army, as uh, the guy in Dallas was. I think the guy was Xavier or something was the guy in Dallas' name. Now, I don't even remember his name. It's probably good, though. You don't, don't even remember these guys' names. But um, tragic situation. There were three policemen that were killed. There were seven people that were, I think, wounded altogether. Um, apparently, he had called in a 911 call and got the police, pretty much lured them out there and began to shoot them uh believe that he was killed in the middle of it and all this the day before the republican convention and i'll get to that here in a bit but i wanted to talk a little bit about this uh gavin long guy and some interesting connections with this dude he was also a podcaster. Really? He had a podcast called Conversations with Co- or Convos with Cosmo. And I have a sneaking feeling that since, you know, we're on Podomatic, that's our our hosting site. I have a sneaking feeling that it was a show that was on Podomatic because I think I can remember seeing it in the listings, but I'm not 100% certain of that, but it the name sounded really familiar. But Apparently, he said that he had done this on his own, and I have a clip here. Let's play that clip before I kind of get into it. This is uh, Gavin Long, his last, I believe, video podcast before he committed his deed in Baton Rouge last week. Oh, and this is very important. I wanted to let y'all know, because if anything happened with me, because I'm an alpha male, I stand up, I stand firm, and I stand for mine till the end. To the last day on this in this flesh but i'm not the flesh i'm not the body i have a body but i just want to let y'all know don't affiliate me with nothing i'm not affiliated with the black business school even though i might promote their business or something like that or any of my friends any of my associations those are just associations i'm not affiliated with it yeah i was also a nation of islam member i'm not affiliated with it don't affiliate me with the money team you, you some having it like yeah we was with floyd mayweather no don't affiliate me with nothing. Black business school. I was a Christian. Uh, I was in Africa. Don't try to say, oh, he was Africa. He was this and that. No. They try to put you with ISIS or some other terrorist group or anything. No. I'm affiliated with the spirit of justice. Nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. All right? You see, convos with Cosmo. That That's me. I created that. That's what I'm affiliated with. Conversations with Cosmo. The shit that I built. Me and my own. And with the spirit of justice, that's it. So just make sure. Uh, no affiliations. No. I thought my own thoughts. I made my own decisions. I'm the one who got to listen to the judgment. That's it. And my heart is pure. It's kind of disturbing listening to that. Especially when you think about what he's about to go do. Yeah, it's almost a, not quite a confessional, but like a 
my actions are my own. Here I go. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. And I believe the Dallas shooter was about the same way. I mean, just pretty much someone that was, well, both of these guys are pretty much fundamentalist extremists just on the side of what you would say is like black nationalism. Uh, there, he did say, he does say that he wasn't affiliated with anyone, but apparently he did have a couple of interesting connections. Uh, well, he mentioned a bunch of memberships. I mean, that's yeah. an affiliation, whether you want to claim it or right. not. Whether you're not, yeah. One of which was apparently the Washita Nation, which I had never heard of this group. And so I thought this was this was interesting. Uh, this is from CNN, like I think the next day after the shootings of Baton Rouge. And by the way, he had he was from Kansas City. He didn't live in Baton Rouge. And oddly enough... He was in Dallas the day that the shootings took place there. Apparently, as he says in another video, independently of the fact that these that the shootings took place, that he had nothing, he had no connection to this other guy. But apparently he was in Dallas for some reason. Do you think and that inspired him maybe, though? Or I don't know. I think then he went to bat. I think after that, he went from Kansas City to Dallas into Baton Rouge that's where he shot the policeman and that's where he was killed. Uh, but the Washita nation after he was killed, investigators found, found a card on long's body suggesting he was a member of the Washita nation. According to two law enforcement office officials, the Southern poverty law center describes the Washita nation as a sovereign tribe descended from pre Columbian blacks who settled in North America. Long legally changed his name to Cosmo Asher Seda Prenra in May 2015, claiming that he was seeking to correct his name because he was a part of the indigenous society United Washita de Dugda Mundva Mu'er Nation. All right, so what is the Washita Nation? Washita Nation, this is from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Washita Moorish Nation is a U.S. separatist group. It describes itself as a sovereign tribe descended from pre-Columbian blacks who settled in North America. Many who claim membership to the Washita Nation say it exempts them from federal and state government jurisdiction, attempting to use laws that were made for Native Americans for their own ends. Law enforcement says the group sells fake driver's licenses and birth certificates. So, I looked up some of this stuff about the Washita Nation. There is stuff on YouTube that you can see, and it is it's it's weird i mean it's weird cult kind of stuff i mean very similar to like um i can't remember the name uh, the black hebrews the guys that say that they are the original that black people are the original hebrews right and, you know that and but it's, it's very uh it's very akin to that and it, they have a they have a queen i, I think her name is like doug dahamid or something like that this is something very weird and it, it it was just almost just too damn strange to watch. It was like People's Temple, Jim Jones kind of kind of crap. Um, now this is interesting. The group is one of many one of many fringe groups to which the gunman may have belonged. Long followed several conspiracy groups devoted to government surveillance and monitoring. An email address linked to him showed that he was a member of a support group in an organization called Freedom from Covert, Covert Harassment and Surveillance. The group's mission is to help those marginalized and abused by remote brain experimentation, remote neural monitoring of an entire human's body. 
on that site, he identified as a buddy representing other targets of government surveillance. Think back to when we had Robert Guffey on, we talked That's about chameleon. Just what popped into my head. Yeah. yeah. The, um, oh, was the term, um, gangs, uh, uh, crowd stalking, yeah. gang stalking, uh, and also talking about the visibility cloak and all those, all that kind of weirdness that was happening to his friend. So this is like a support group for people like this that is for a support group for people like that. Now, I, I don't know if that necessarily inspired him to do what he did. I think more directly what inspired him was probably the shootings of Sterling right, and Castile. For me, it, for me, it, it at least says that there's that he's a little bit, um, you know, he has some schizophrenic tendencies. Yeah, that should be looked into as big and, part of the cause, and possibly PTSD as well. Yeah, uh, uh, just like the just like the guy in Dallas, as I said before. He was also a veteran. Mm -hmm. So in this case, he was a Marine. Uh, so interesting stuff. Another point about the uh, covert surveillance is the guy that we mentioned on that show with Robert Guffey, the, who three years ago shot people at that Naval Center in Washington, D.C., and the gun said Elf on it. Right. It said, which was, was the speculation has been that that meant electromagnetic frequency. Uh, that's another interesting connection. So was that happening to this guy, this Cosmo Gavin long, whatever his name was, you know, I, I really don't want to give it too much attention because I really don't want to bring too much attention to, to this guy. Right. But at the same time, I, I see what you're saying. And it's, I, I definitely think it's a possibility that, um, you know, we talk a lot about the continuation of the MK ultra program and the, um, uh, you know, conditioned individuals that are out there um, basically as pawns yeah. to help put certain things into place. And I think that the only agenda that this all points to for me is the militarization of our police and more of a police state type of government, which I definitely think is something that we as civilians don't want, but we as a government country are pushing for are moving towards yeah and we've been moving towards it at and, least since 9-11 yeah oh absolutely and well i, I think before 9-11 i think 9-11 was just a, the first big stepping stone in that plot yeah but Seems yeah like I, I definitely accelerated. i definitely think like yeah i think these are just continuations of that for sure right or they're and, or they're isolated incidents based on the um you know all the the separation all this talk all this uh hate these people hate these people type of stuff yeah. in our media but that media is also controlled by the people that are you know funding and controlling everything else so to think that they're not using that as a tool is kind of silly yeah i agree uh one difference between uh, one thing i want to point out too is a one difference between this shooting of baton rouge and in dallas is that actually one of the policemen in baton rouge was actually black it was two white policemen and one black guy and so this guy was just making a war against the police. I don't think he really cared in his mind about the color of the police officer. No. We do know in Dallas that that guy was aiming for a white policeman. Right. But we also brought up on the show last week or the last episode that the police involved in those two shootings that were back to back prior to that, they, they weren't white officers either. 
yeah they were just officers well yeah and uh in <laughs> Fernando Castile's case that was i believe he was uh his <clears throat> he was either hispanic or or asian mm-hmm. uh, i haven't gotten really i don't really know which one he was because there's been there were conflicting reports on that uh altered sterling though they were white but again there's the media bias there right the right. media that it's white policemen killing black people well and it's sort of presented as yeah. an assumption too like right it's if we don't say it then this is what everyone's gonna conclude so they buy into it uh, I do want to say this about Dallas. I ran across this, and it's kind of like a meme on Facebook. So yeah, we'll, you know, always with that, it's more simple <laughs> right, be than careful. it is. But the in Dallas, you have. I mean, this this was probably one of the worst places. Well, thank you. One of the worst places that it could have happened, and probably if you would say that, like, if if no place does. No, nobody deserves this to happen. Right. But this was a place that probably did not deserve it at all because they are actually trying to change things. Uh, the police chief in Dallas is a black guy. So the, the Dallas police chief took the job with a mission to transform the culture. In 2009, there were 147 reports of excessive force. Last year, there were 13. This is achieved in part by terminating 70 cops, the most police firings of any city in the nation. I guess you could call that a. I guess you could call that a war on cops. I call it everything that Black Lives Matter and reasonable people are calling for. It was another thing I saw. So on they Facebook were trying to do the right thing. Where I, I don't remember where it was, but just to throw another positive story out there because we need that these days. Was I wish I could remember where it was, but Alyssa, you might. It was where the um the Black Lives Matter rally. They decided instead of to do that to have um to co found this picnic with the police department and everybody yeah, got together yeah. as a community and discussing right. civilly and everybody ended up getting along and agreeing and you know kind of taking steps forward which i thought was really a great thing that we need a lot more of instead of going out there and blocking the interstate and right you right know, and they're not being there being this dichotomy between black lives matter and the police and everybody's constantly at war right um that's you know, just promoting the segregation and the separation of us ex- instead of exactly yeah exactly and the 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 dallas police chief you know him himself i saw him say you know look he's he he goes out on the out on tv and says we need people we need people in these communities apply put your application in we're hiring i mean he's very even after what happened to his police his policeman under his watch he was still pretty gracious to the community and contrast that with the police chief in Milwaukee, who's also a black man, uh, and his law and order stuff, and speaking at the Republican National Convention. And I'm going to tell you, word of warning here. I think you guys know this. These police shootings keep happening. That is going to get Trump elected. Because I watched the first night of the Republican convention and it was all we need law and order. We need the cops. uh, Cops are being killed all over this country. You know, we're being assaulted. Uh, And then also illegal immigrants are going around and randomly killing people. 
I mean, fear, look, fear, 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 fear. It was it was all fear. Yeah. Monday night. That's the only night that I really watched it. It was all fear. And then Trump's speech. I didn't watch it all, but most of it was the same thing. He's saying I can fix things. Now we can fix things. Now we can do it. But I'm the one that's going to fix everything. So is he running for dictator? I was just going to say he sounds like a dictator to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to tell you guys. I mean, there's a lot of people in the alternative media, guys like Alex Jones and then other even lesser people in the alternative media that think that Donald Trump is going to change everything, that he's going to, you know, bring America back to some kind of form of greatness. Oh, he'll change but he everything. Doesn't, he doesn't care. Yeah. This, guy, this guy doesn't care. He just picks stuff up from talk radio and gets gets to tell got got his guys his cronies to tell him what everybody's concerned about, and he just went out there and aped it up on the stage. That's what he's been a master at for decades, right? And, and it, whether it's been in business or or politics, the guy's a, just in it. He's just in it for he's just in it for himself. Thing he, is, I don't think Hillary Clinton's any damn better. No, because as we were pointing out this weekend, it's been coming out that that's uh. In these emails, I think the WikiLeaks put out from the Repub- the Democratic National Committee, that they have pretty much cheated Bernie Sanders out of the nomination. Of course they did. And now I just heard that the, the chairman of the Democratic Party, that she has resigned. Well, and sometimes I wonder, too, with Donald Trump, because he's Donald Trump, sometimes you can go, like, I, I think even... If you go deeper, what if he ran for president and maybe it's all concocted and it's all it's all a big ruse to get her elected? Because who in their right mind would vote for Trump? And, you know, it's just like that. that I saw on Facebook the other day. It's like they expect me, you know, they know I'm not a fool, so I'm not going to vote for this person. But they would have anticipated that I'm not a fool and wouldn't vote for this person. So they inserted this person. That's that's a that's that's a theory, and it's one that I've kind of like been ascribing to lately. Is that he has been he's, he's just, just there to look to look as silly as possible. Well, that's what and I thought in the beginning. As extreme as possible. I thought that in the beginning because he was a Democrat and he was friends with the Clintons long before any of this yes. started, and it was just a recent thing that he switched over to the Republican Party yes. and ran on his own. But Did, then I think he started liking it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And I think uh, that's. Right, he's got power the, and notoriety, and people are, you know, yep. Yep. standing right in line behind him, and it's all based on fear and hate. Did you know this week as well that his, uh, the ghost author, yes, of, uh, the art of the deal. It's good deals. We're gonna give everybody gonna good <laughs> deals. I was gonna mention that that he Russia, came- you're gonna get a good deal. China, you're getting a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody just shut up and let the Donald take care of it. Anyway, the author of Out of the Deal came out and said that the guy's a sociopath. I was just going to bring and, that up. Yep. And, and said that he's troubled by the fact that this man is going to get the nuclear codes. I was going to say that. Some of that could be hyperbole, but. Right, but I was going to suggest there should be some kind, of, some kind of psychological evaluation before you can be president. If you're a complete uh, sociopath, you should not be allowed in any position of power. <laughs> yeah, and that author even said that if Donald Trump weren't running for president or that it wasn't, you know, ever even on the table, that he wouldn't have regretted writing the book. But he said, basically, if this helps him in any way become president of this country, I absolutely regret 
every word of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because even that guy knows <laughs> that, you know, back then it was just, I'm writing this book and we're going to make some money. And now if anybody goes back to that and says, well, read his book, you know, he's, he's great at this and that. Well, that guy's going to have a hand in, in getting him. And in, in, in pretty in much probably already has. And, you know, two, I want to point out that don't think things that outside of this country are not going to affect the, the Trump getting elected as well, because they talk all this stuff about the Muslim terrorism and all this when events like in Nice on July 14th that happened with, with the guy running, you know, hurtling a truck into a crowd of people oh, on yeah. Bastille Day. Yep. Uh, and also yesterday there was um, the guy that went into uh, a McDonald's in Munich and started shooting. I didn't hear about that one. Yep. Yeah. So everything that everything's keep happening and like it's been an eventful two weeks with the Republican convention shootings and I mean, the shooting of Baton Rouge, the terrorist attacks in Europe, all this kind of stuff. And, and it, as the as the Republicans and Trump keep amping up this fear and saying we're the only ones that can fix it. If something major happens, if another thing like San Bernardino even happens in this country between now and November, that will get Trump elected. It will happen. Yeah. It will happen. I did want to backtrack just a tiny bit. And Rob was saying something about, you know, we need more positive stories and stuff. Um, there was a really good one that I brought to his attention last Tuesday. Um, I read online that here in Nashville, the Metro Police Department has set up um, an organization or whatever, charity, whatever you want to call it, where they take inner city kids who would never have a chance to go to summer camp or, you know, go horseback riding, fishing, you know, doing things, you know, outside that kids do in the summer. Um, And it's uh, it's all done with the Metro Police Department and the Metro officers themselves are there. They're, you know, the kids camp counselors or whatever. And the kids go there. They make these. They form these relationships and these bonds with these with these officers, and they don't tell the kids until the end of the camp that their police your officers. new buddy is actually a police officer. And I think that's a really, that's good. really good it's way positive. to um, give the kids a positive experience, give them something that they've never done. They're never going to forget that. And they might see that cop out on their beat, you know, a week later and, you know, run up to them and jump in their car and hit the buttons and have a great time as opposed to. Kids get in the house. Cops are, you know, like right. Another way I, to merge the community and, and it's a good bring way, everyone together. Yeah, and it's it's easier to reach people. I think younger, you know, at, at that age than it is to change people's minds that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years old that have been raised this way or but grown up to, you know, this is what they know and this is what they believe and that's that's it. That's the end of it. But I was really, really, really happy and really yeah. proud to see that. And I was like, that is an awesome idea. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. And I think, but I think um, what we really need in our countries and our communities is we need good deals. Oh my God. <laughs> That's what we need. It's going to be great. Should have sent me that clip. But, but before he came up <laughs> yeah. and like before he, uh, before he um, came out and when he introduced Melania, he comes out and he's like, we're going to fix everything. It's going to be so good. It's going to be good. And as far as her, like, you know, 
plagiarizing her speech. I mean, whatever. I mean, it's all BS political it's, stuff exactly. anyway. Like, the fact that that bothered people bothered me. It's like, you really think any of them write their own yeah, speeches? They, they don't. I mean, back in 1988, nobody remembers this. Joe Biden, who was running for president, okay, he was not, he didn't get this party's nomination because I went to do caucus. But in 1988, he actually gave a speech somewhere and they found out that he pulled it from a Labor Party politician speech in Britain from like a couple of years before. <laughs> and it was almost verbatim. And apparently Obama had ripped people off before. Apparently uh, both Michelle Obama and Melania, apparently both. I wonder if she listens to Leibach because she is from Slovenia. Anyway, but both of them had apparently gotten that from another speech, I think from Eleanor Roosevelt or somebody. So it's like, whatever, that's just all picking hairs. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is silly, you know? And like, apparently there was this other thing about Trump, like patted Ivanka on the butt or something, you know, and like, but it wasn't even that he just was patting her on the side. It's just like, come on people. You know, let's, let's talk about stuff that's like of substance and that's concerning, but we do need to call Richard Dolan because we are getting late. We are. So, (laughs) Finish your point, Alyssa. Okay, real quick point, though. I read online, uh, someone said about the Melania speech that that also could be, you know, a, a, a way for them to, you know, everybody's like, oh, she plagiarized, blah, 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 blah. Well, what, what do you think is going to happen the next time she steps on that stage? Yeah. Everybody is going to tune in and everybody is going to be listening. So that could have been, you know, to think that they're so stupid that they would just do that and not think of what the repercussions would be they know what the repercussions are going to be they planned on it right. is what i think good but. point ready for let's uh let's talk some ufos all right with richard dolan you guys will be right back on conspiracy normal Okay, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. For us, it was just a few minutes. For you, just a few seconds. But uh, on the line, we are very privileged to bring on a guest that I think really needs no introduction. If anybody doesn't know who Richard Dolan is and you're uh, in the field of ufology, then you've been living under a rock for like the last 20 years. And Richard, we got a chance to meet up with you back in... May at the Paradigm Symposium, and it's uh, very good to talk to you again, sir. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back, actually. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here with you guys. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we had a great discussion with you uh, and Micah and uh, Peter Robbins at the uh, Paradigm Symposium. We kind of yes. talked a little bit about UFOs, talked about false flag events, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, we scheduled an interview with you there, and I want to talk about your book, The uh, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, mm-hmm. which uh, I have not exactly finished yet. I'm down to like the last 100 pages, but there's so much in the book that I think we're only going to kind of skim the surface on this subject tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- my first question for you is kind of the origin of this book mm-hmm. and what kind of led you to write a new history of ufos for the 21st century and why do you think that we kind of need a like a fresh history like a fresh look at the history of ufos and ufology yeah thank you for asking this uh the book itself was not initially my own little brainchild um i was approached uh, a number of years ago by what was then an online university 
that uh, asked if I would create a kind of an introduction to ufology course for their program. Mm. And that course, uh, as they had envisioned it, would, would consist of, I think it was 12 lectures that would be at least an hour long each that would be on for the, the program. And then there would be students who would sign up. And I, I would actually, if I wished, to be the instructor and I would grade the papers and all of that. So I was really unsure about wanting to, to do a, an online university. But I agreed to do this program to create it because I explicitly thought this is exactly the kind of book that I would like to write. I thought 12 one-hour lectures, that really does translate into a, into a good book. And what I ended up doing was, was writing this book, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. And I, I like this book. I'm glad that I wrote it. And I intended it explicitly as uh, I think it really filled a gap that was very much needed in this field, which is a a good, reliable, single volume right. that covers, in a in kind of a fresh way, all of the complexities of what we call the UFO phenomenon. And I mean, think about when you, when someone thinks about UFOs, there's so many subsets of this subject that you could spend an entire lifetime in. There's the history of sightings from ancient times until today. That alone can take you a lifetime or more to just understand it all. But on top of that, there's the politics, the politics and the cover-up, we might say. Um, that's a, that's something that I have thrown myself into now for 20 years, and I could easily go another 20 years or more. And then there's UFOs and science, so the very weird science that's connected with this subject from something as simple as propulsion technology, which is very interesting in itself, to things like... Um, interstellar travel, if this is possible, or uh, string theory, or uh, theories of consciousness itself. All of these are related to the uh, science of the UFO phenomenon, it seems to me. And then there's issues dealing with um, who are we dealing with? What are we dealing with? What are these beings? Are they other beings? Are they from another planet? Are they from another dimension? Are they from another time? Are they us in some way? And how does this relate to what we call the abduction or contact scenario? Um, all of these are aspects. There's the whole social aspect of UFOs. How does one investigate UFOs in the 21st century in a world of Facebook and YouTube videos uh, and copy and pasting the latest rumor that comes your way? All of these are part <laughs> yeah. of what we would call UFOs. And then there's the issue of disclosure and looking at the future. Is there secrecy connected to UFOs? If so... Does that mean there's a cover-up, and will that cover-up ever end? What we call disclosure, is such a thing possible? And if so, what next? This is a very important uh, aspect of the subject, in my opinion. And so I felt like a fresh understanding of the entire UFO subject demands uh, a, this comprehensive approach. And it's something that I was actually really um, up for doing, and I felt that I could do it. And I'm very happy with how it came out. And I wanted it to be a one-book uh, introduction for an intelligent reader who really wanted to get into all of these aspects. And what I found, this is the last thing I'll say on it as an intro, on one level I think it serves as, as, an, as a strong introduction to someone who's never read anything about UFOs. I think it's a very good place to start. But what I've discovered is I've met many um, seasoned uh, researchers who have told me that they found many, many fresh insights and new ways of looking at the phenomenon as a result of that book. So I'm very happy and gratified to hear that as well. Yeah, I thought it was very refreshing for me to read as well because um, 
when you cover this kind of stuff a lot, it kind of becomes old hat and a little like, oh, that's just a repeat of what I've read before. But I did like some of the perspectives that you put in the book. I'd like to know before we kind of get into some of the stuff in the book, how you got involved with this, uh, this field of study. Because one thing I didn't know about you till we met in Minneapolis was that you were actually a trained historian. And it was funny because we, we actually ended up talking more about Abraham Lincoln you and I did than about UFOs. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm an unabashed uh, Lincoln fanboy. I have no problem saying that uh, whatsoever. I've, I think I've read every piece of correspondence Lincoln ever wrote. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of him and I, I admire him. But yeah, right. We talked about that. That's right. Um, as far as with the UFO phenomenon, um, yes, in the early 1990s, I was working on a doctoral dissertation in U.S. Cold War studies. Wow. Uh, basically, the Harry Truman presidency and uh, U.S. attitudes in relationship to the Soviet Union, circa 1950, uh, a lot of national security strategy of that time, uh, nothing to do with the UFO phenomenon whatsoever. And uh, I, I've told this a number of times, I, I really got into this in two ways. One was the main way was at a bookstore, and I saw a copy of Timothy Good's classic book known as Above Top Secret the subtitle of which was called The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. Uh, I will never forget this. I, it was on a book stand, and uh, I flipped through the pages, and I thought, oh, wow, uh, because I recognized a number of the names that were in his book. I recognized them from my own academic study. But here was a, a book that was placing them in a totally different context, that is the UFO context. And I had this moment of what I, I've since called cultural schizophrenia. So in other words, in our culture, there's there are truths that are official truths that we're supposed to believe, that are sanctioned by our greater power structure. But then there's unofficial. There's the official truths and then unofficial truth. That is the truth that's actually, that uh, people are truly looking into that are not necessarily officially sanctioned. And it occurred to me that it was possible that this was the case of the UFO phenomenon, that it was something that was officially disregarded, but that behind closed doors in the classified world, maybe there were people who were taking it seriously. So I only started, um, I wasn't intending to spend the rest of my life looking at this phenomenon. <laughs> I really was not. Right. I thought I would take a few months out of my life, literally two or three months is what I thought, and I would satisfy for myself what I thought about this uh, subject. Every, everyone has heard of claims of cover-up with UFOs. I don't think there's a person in the world who has not at least become familiar with the fact that there are, there are claims that there's UFO secrecy. And I was aware of this, and I thought, I don't like having this big question mark hanging over my head in an area that I'm studying. You know, if there was a cover-up of UFOs, that would affect the world of 1950 that I was studying at the time. So I thought, I'll just, I'd like to resolve this, and I don't want to not know anymore. My naivete was in thinking that I could resolve this in a couple of months and thinking that, you know, two or three months and I would resolve this. And in fact, what it did is it just sucked me right in and I became obsessed and I mean totally obsessed with learning more and more and more because I did quickly become persuaded very early on, of course, through the massive declassified government documents that are available, that there is a cover up and to me, once I became apprised of this, persuaded of it, I was in. I wanted to know more, and I've, ne- I've not stopped. Um, 
you know, the thing now is to find out what is the nature of the cover-up, um, you know, how serious is the phenomenon and how, how does the cover-up maintain itself after all these years, all these political questions, which naturally come to mind for me. Sure. But that's, that's how I got into it. That was 20 plus years ago now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Let's start off with where you start with in the book. And that is with the ancient alien theory. Right. This has become very popular, especially in the last, what, 10 years with, you know, the rise of the the show Ancient Aliens and all all this kind of stuff. Do you believe in the possibility of an ancient alien theory? Or do you Um, think that there's an evidence that is like really good proof of that? And then maybe some evidence that they that they talk about that is just kind of not as good. I would say, um, I mean, there's aspects of that particular TV show that are a bit frustrating for me as a researcher and that I I think are just really kind of cheesy for TV and so on, (laughs) Um, you know, without a doubt. I I think that Giorgio Tsoukalos would agree with that. In fact, I don't think he would have any problem with anyone saying that. Um, I do believe that there is reason to suspect that there's a massive hole in our ancient history as a species. There are, in my opinion, uh, some significant unexplained mysteries as well as some very intriguing uh let's say ufo types of stories that make me very open to the idea that we've we've been visited or managed all along i i would say that i do think a lot of what is passed as evidence for ancient astronauts or ancient aliens is very weak or or incorrect so i think that there's um you know, there's kind of some of these ideas have almost become like a religion in and of itself. And agreed, yeah. You know, whether we're talking about the Anunnaki, of which I'm I'm suspicious of to this day, of getting overboard with that. Um, I mean, there are people who just take it as a given, like, oh yeah, the Anunnaki, they were there, they were here, uh, they've been here for five hundred thousand years, whatever. I think that there's there's very strong reservations and objections one can have to that theory, but I do think it's totally possible that there have been other intelligences that have been here monitoring us and watching us. One one of the great ancient mysteries that I have always been fascinated by and that I think always will be is the Great Pyramid of Giza. When one looks at the mathematics, the engineering, the geographical position, uh, the, the true full history of that pyramid alone, I think it's a very strong argument that whoever built that pyramid knew that the Earth was a sphere, knew where the pyramid was in relation to the entire geography of the earth and much, much more, much more with a level of archaeology, excuse me, a level of engineering that, I mean, think of it this way. That pyramid could not have been built. I don't know if it could be built today, maybe, but it could not have been built as recently as 100 years ago. So like the world of Theodore Roosevelt, that pyramid I would suggest was beyond the technical capabilities of human civilization right. at the turn of the 20th century. So whoever built that pyramid um, was unbelievably advanced, and it just does not make sense to me that this would be early Egyptian civilization circa 2500 BC. I don't, I don't find that persuasive. So there's something about that structure that makes me think that there was a level of knowledge of civilization that is beyond what we're supposed to know. Now, does that mean it's aliens? I'm not saying that. I don't right. know. Right. But but there are these questions that um that are suggestive. And then there's some very interesting ancient UFO stories. 
that, again, are not proof, but they are very interesting. You know, whether we're talking from ancient Egypt, there's a few, through uh, ancient Greece and Rome, through the, the Middle Ages, there's a, a fascinating one from Russia in 1663, fascinating story, uh, account uh, right in through the 19th century in the very early 20th century where we get into some very remote regions where you've got UFO sightings that frankly do not make sense. They just don't make sense. So there's – this is not simply explainable in my opinion as a strictly modern phenomenon. I don't think that that's the logical way to look at it. Yeah, it's something that would have been going on for a long time. It just became uh, into popular culture in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. Right, and- exactly. And, and what you do well, I think, in in that chapter is that you take – you debunk where debunking is needed, but then you leave some other things that are just like they're not so easily debunked that could point to the possibility of there being some kind of contact. I agree. And I think you know, there's nothing wrong with debunking something if, uh, if you go in with the right attitude. Sure. Attitude is you want to go and, and adhere to the truth and, and see where the evidence lies. There are – uh, debunkers or skeptics out there who I feel uh, they go in with a preconceived idea that they have to debunk every single case. And right. uh, I don't think that's the best approach either. But Guys uh, like Philip Glass, those guys. Well, the Philip J. Glass, yeah. Yeah, he, he died a number of years ago. But yeah, he was the classic 20th century uh, UFO skeptic debunker for sure. And without a doubt, he would go into cases and with that attitude. And he would go farther than that. He would actually just smear personalities and smear campaigns was really his specialty. Um, but yeah, I mean, with a lot of the ancient evidence, uh, I do think we've got to be careful in just wanting to glom onto every little case and say, oh yes, this was legit, this was legit. No, we really need to be careful. And um, But having said that, there's, there is, you know, I think that there's a definite uh, number of anomalous sightings and events and pieces of evidence that are, are curious, not as much archaeology as some people think, at least in my opinion. But again, I cite the pyramid. Uh, I think some of the South American uh, archaeological ruins are difficult to explain. They're difficult to, to explain. And whether that's evidence of other intelligence, extraterrestrial, I don't know. But I, I keep it all as a possibility. Hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's very interesting that there could have been something that happened in the past. I'm much more of a ancient civilization kind of guy than I am the ancient astronaut theory uh necessarily. Right. Uh, I don't I don't Graham discount Hancock. it as yeah. enough. Right. Graham, Graham Hancock and you know his classic book Fingerprints of the Gods I think is a very good sort of summation of that argument maybe. Right, exactly. And we can kind of get into some of that as we talk about the nature of the of it. But I want to continue a little bit with the history. And that's kind of like the precursors to the modern UFO flap that, as I mentioned before, it starts in 1947. And that is the airships. Oh, yes. Foo Fighters, the, the Scandinavian rockets. I want to talk about, a little bit about uh, about that. What do you think about the airships? Do you think there was something there to that? You know, the airship wave, this, I'm so glad you're asking these questions. It's, so for someone who's not familiar with this, in, in, uh, starting in November of 1896, yeah. in, uh, starting in Sacramento, California, was, you might say, the, first, the beginning of the first wave of UFO sightings in the modern era. 
uh, November 17th, I believe. And, and in that case, this is 1896, so it's uh, about a decade before we have air, airplanes. Now, there were rudimentary balloons and blimps that were flying, mostly in Europe, and none of them had any significant range, and they were all dangerous at that time. Uh, we didn't really get the first modern uh, like Zeppelins or the modern airships until uh, like 1905 or so. Right. So like a decade before that, and, th- and those were in Europe. In America, there's, there's very little evidence of advanced airship design at all. But in Sacramento in 1896, people noticed a, a light passing over the city, and it was described as an electric arc lamp propelled by some mysterious force. This is not necessarily a big blimp. No one really knows what this thing was. We do know from reports that it was at a low altitude and and several hundred people saw it. Some observers claimed to hear voices. Um, And then people did notice that as it approached buildings and hills, so it had to be very low, that it took evasive action to avoid hitting buildings. So that's very interesting, like what that would be if this is accurate. It seems that this was a serious report. It returned three days later uh, as a light circling the city at what was considered high speed. Lots of officials, including uh, state officials, were seeing this. And people basically agreed it was not an astronomical body. From that, we have a wave of these sightings in the western U.S. going uh, to the central U.S. of what would be called would be called the airships. And I mean, the fact is that there is no explanation for these airships to this day. Many were described as having powerful lights, headlights, searchlights. Some of the stories were clearly uh, jokes and were clearly just people having fun. Right. Piling on. There's a lot of that. But then there were other sightings that appear to be legitimate. There was one over Chicago in April of 1897 where it was reported that thousands of amazed people we're watching the lights over Chicago. We're saying that this is some kind of floating object well high above. And uh, there are people who said that they could see two cigar-shaped objects with wings. They use the phrase cigar-shaped objects, which, of course, we hear with UFOs all the time. And, and for once in a while, it would be lit by these giant searchlights. That's Chicago in 1897. I don't know what this was. And then just as suddenly as it began the wave of sightings stopped. And you also had the Aurora crash. Yeah, yeah, the, in Aurora, Texas. Uh, yeah. This this is another interesting case, and there's we could really get into it. But yeah, an object was said to have crashed in Aurora, Texas, in April of 1897. Um, this has been investigated by a number of people. MUFON, back in the 1970s, a civilian UFO group, looked into it. There's some very interesting things that they claim happened during that investigation, including they thought they found this, the grave site of where this alien creature was said to be buried. And when they went to it the next day or a couple of days later, supposedly the, uh, the grave site had been emptied. This is part of the lore yeah. of this case. It's really amazing stuff. Uh, my colleague and friend Jim Mars did a oh, yeah. significant study of the Aurora crash as well. So Again, the problem that we have with these airship sightings from that period of time is simply that there wasn't really any proper investigation done. So what you have are a bunch of stories. No one really bothered to say, what the heck is this? Is this actually a real thing? Uh, Interviewing witnesses, 
very little of that. You basically just have these disparate stories that are out there, but they're interesting. What you find is after that ended, through the 20th century, is a major upsurge of sightings that took place, even before the Second World War. But Richard, are you familiar with the Charles Delshaw paintings? I bel- Actually, that rings a bell, but I have to be honest and say I'm not ring- remembering off the top of my head what they are. Well, supposedly the story is that these these – these paintings were found in, uh, I think, in an estate sale back in the 60s. And they, they were attributed to a man named Charles Delschau, who was a German immigrant in the middle of the 19th century. And apparently he had... Oh, he was, the, he was an airship. Yeah, he, made, he, he did these little drawings, these little paintings yes. in these books of these airships. I do recall this. Yeah. I, I wish I could remember more of the details. I read about this... Um, as little as a year ago, as a matter of fact, and this is quite fascinating. Um, the, the theory is, if I'm not mistaken, that he was involved. There was a there was supposedly a group, I think, based out of at one time New York State, if I'm not mistaken, that was a um, that of German American, like German immigrants. Yeah, it was called the, the Nimza and the Sonora Aero Club. That's it. Walter Bosley is someone we've had on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with any yes, of his yes, work. Yes. And he he's he's written about this. And it's quite fascinating stuff. It goes into the, a lot of the breakaway civilization stuff that you talk about as well. Indeed. And I'm so glad you mentioned this. And um, so the theory is that there was a group of Americans, German-Americans, who might have been behind this airship wave. I think that's interesting. And I, I perhaps I should read more of his work. But the real question is, um, this could very well be the answer, but think about how amazing this is because when you look through the history of aviation, any of these books, none of this is discussed. And right. these guys would be a full decade or more ahead of the rest of the world in terms of cutting-edge aviation. They really were way ahead. Airships of the 1890s, um, the leading uh, airship technology in Europe was probably based out of Paris back then, and those airships – could not go more than um, a couple of kilometers, miles at the most before they'd crash and people get killed all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were not easy to steer. Um, and so what would be different with these American airships, these guys would have discovered principles of, of, of navigation and, and steering that would have been vastly ahead and no one would have known about them. That's the incredible thing, to have done the whole thing in secret. So I don't really know how strong this case is. And there were but, reports of them. There were reports of them apparently landing in fields, and they were perfectly human. They would go and introduce themselves with their first right. names, and they would Absolutely. have lunch with people, and then get back in the airship and leave. And there were also claims with these airships, uh, because at this time there was a big upsurge in war uh, warmongering for, uh, against Spain over yeah. Cuba. This is a huge, huge political issue in the U.S. And there were a number of these, uh, at least in one case, I know, the uh, pilots of the airships told the inhabitants that, yes, we're going to help uh, fight fight against Spain. It was a huge, huge <laughs> thing. So, I mean, what is this all about? This, is this just another spurious tale, probably, whimsical? Um, it's, t- it's very hard with these airship sightings to, s- to tease out the legitimate sightings from 
from these fun stories that people just like to spin a good Right, because the yellow journalism of the time, the Hearst Press, I mean, they just made stuff up willy-nilly, really. Yes, I think so. And um, and not not just them, but yes, I agree. I think there was a lot of, um, you know, people just having fun. You know, there was a group, there was a club back in those days called the Liars Club, and they just would, they would make up stories. They, this is a fun uh, thing for them to do. They didn't care. Uh, they weren't bad people. They just had fun, you know, spinning a good <laughs> yarn and making people believe it. Um, and, and I think that some of them were involved in this as well. That's that's something that comes up a lot on this topic is the um, how did that go on without it becoming a militarized thing and the government not coming in and taking advantage of this? Well, uh, it's a good question. The U.S. Government in the 1890s was not the same as the U.S. government in the 20th and 21st century by any means. Um, it was a much very small government. Uh, there was not this kind of intense. Um, I mean, there it was. U.S. government always supported a kind of aggressive, aggressive approach in many ways, whether with the native inhabitants or you know, very soon with the Philippines and the Spanish and Cuba and Hawaii and, and going on from there. But I don't think it's, uh, you know, you could say that the U.S. government had a systematic program to exploit exotic technology back at this time. I don't, I gotcha. I don't really sense that that was the case. So um, I don't really know. I think that there's a lot of mysteries about this airship. Is it is it solely explainable as human, covert human innovators i would like to explore more of this theory i don't know if we'll ever really be able to get to the bottom of it it's yeah. more than a century away and um a lot of the evidence is is may not may may not ever show up it's utterly fascinating stuff yeah. about the foo fighters and the scandinavian what what do you think was going on there with uh, those with with those incidents well i think uh, as you get into the first half of the 20th century you know up to the second world war and into the second world war um you know, there are some very, very odd and not easy to explain sightings. Um, there, there was one actually at, uh, in the 1930s that sometimes I like to refer to. I found this one myself in the Canadian National Archives. Um, you know, Canadians back in the 70s and 80s could report their UFOs to the government. And basically, the, the, no one investigated these, but the government maintained those reports. And you can read them. I've read them. Uh, there was one man who talked about his sighting from 1936 when he was way, way, way up in the Northwest Territories doing work for the Canadian government, doing aerial mapping. And he um, he was on the ground. He was one of the thousands of lakes that are up there. And he looked straight up and there was an object directly over him. Now, where he was, I, I've looked at it on a map. It's utterly remote to this day. It's almost impossible to get to. But he looked up and it was an elongated object. And this is in the spring or summer of 1936. It was elongated and it went from a north-south configuration, turned to east-west, and instantly accelerated, was at the horizon in a matter of moments. Um, I wasn't there. I can't confirm it, but I read through his account. It was very detailed. Handwriting was impeccable. He submitted his military records to the government. I think he was legit. And so where he was in the middle of nowhere in 1936 in the Northwest Territories of Canada, hmm. there was something up there. There was technology that was highly advanced. You go into the world, Second World War, the... Uh, this phenomenon that became known as Foo Fighters was reported. Typical Foo Fighter report would be you'd have a Allied um, a bombing mission, you know, over part of Europe, and accompanied by some fighter aircraft, and a luminous object or some kind of light 
would accompany the craft sometimes cause engine disruptions before those lights would often shoot straight up into the sky and disappear. Now, the uh, Allied nations, America and Britain primarily, looked into these. We know that they did. We do not know what their conclusions were, but we know that they looked into it and that they considered whether these were German uh, weapons of some sort. Logical question to look into. Um, my very good friend Joseph Farrell, who's looked into this in detail, has suggested that some of these could have been German technology. But I will say this, and that Joseph can speak for himself, I was not persuaded in any way that the Foo Fighter phenomenon is fully explainable as German technology. I don't believe it. I don't think any of his research uh, supports that conclusion either. There's aspects of the Foo Fighter phenomenon that are beyond German technology as explaining it. The fact is that they were in the European and Pacific theaters. And the fact is yeah. that these things are were they're advanced enough that you really have to ask yourself, what kind of technology were the Germans or anyone working with that could allow these things to do this? It's not easily explainable. And so, plus, too, weren't some of the Germans on record, some of the guys in the German military on record of saying that they th equally thought the Foo Fighters were, were some kind of allied secret weapon? Indeed, this is – that's right. And yeah. uh, from my understanding – and I've never gotten this fully confirmed, but I think the same thing was of the Japanese. Um, the claim is that, yes, allied and Axis nations encountered these and wondered if these were psychological weapons or some kind of weapon from the other side. So – and the fact is that there's really no hard evidence to this day that the Germans developed um, what we would call the Foo Fighters. Just, it's not there. Oh, we have some speculation, um, some guesses. So it's a, it's a mystery. And, and immediately after the conclusion of that war, we get into what you were just uh, hinting at, what we might call the ghost rocket phenomenon. This is 1946, one year before the flying saucers kind of take over the news. We have UFOs over Scandinavia, and then this phenomenon spread throughout much of Europe, going as far south and east as Greece, hmm. where they were seen. All through 1946, uh, France had some sightings, uh, Italy, I believe, Germany, I believe, and then Greece had quite a few. Um, the United States military was involved in investigating these. U.S. military was involved in having Scandinavian and Greek governments clamp down on the information. Um, we have a statement from a Greek scientist, Paul Santorini. He was a world-renowned physicist. He helped develop radar he helped develop fuses for the atomic bomb, uh, the Nike missile guidance system. He's a major scientist. So he stated some years later in the 60s, I think in an interview, he said, I was involved in investigating these ghost rockets in 1946. The Greek government, he said, was alarmed at what was going on. These objects were being seen. And he, he was supplied by the Greek army with engineers to investigate and solve this problem. And their conclusion was that these were not Russian, these were not missiles, whatever they were. And then he made, he made a very important statement. He said, before we could do any more, the army, after conferring with foreign officials, read United States officials, sure. ordered the investigation stopped. And um, actually the same conclusion happened with the Swedish government. They concluded, um, you know, they looked into this. The Americans come in. The Swedes stopped talking to the world. But their own classified conclusion was 
that these objects were most likely not from our civilization. That conclusion was not uh, revealed until the 1980s, 40 years later. But that was their conclusion, that in all likelihood these were not from human civilization. Radical conclusion to come to in 1946. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you also get into in the book and that I really enjoyed – this is one of the parts that I really enjoyed was, you know, we all hear about Roswell and that's a very famous case, but you also cover some of the other supposed right. UFO crashes that occur after 1947. What are some of those? And what do you think in, in your opinion is probably one of the, best evidence that something actually did happen. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, there's two ways of going about this. So a couple of the other crashes that I do think are, have, there's now a reasonable case for the possibility. One would be Aztec, New Mexico in 1948. So just uh, less than one year after Roswell would have happened in uh, March of 1948, I do think the case is now a good one. Uh, that a UFO, let's say, or a saucer crashed in a town of Aztec, New Mexico, near what we would call the Four Corners area of the American Southwest. And um, and I say this because, you know, when it happened, uh, this was a case that actually did get some publicity and was significantly debunked in the mainstream not long after that happened. And... But the fact is that this was reopened by two investigators, a married couple named Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. And I I have read their study of this and I am fully persuaded that they have they have made the case that the debunking of the Aztec case was purely psychologically motivated, politically motivated. Um, and when you look into the actual evidence, there's some truly strange anomalous things that, that appear to have happened. And and not as much witness testimony as what you get with Roswell, but there's enough that makes you um, think that, yeah, something really did happen. And there is some physical evidence that's on the site. Um, probably, I, I don't know how much of it I can get into here, but I think the case is a good one that actually something did happen at Aztec in 1948. UFO researchers for years would dismiss it as a hoax. I think that's a mistaken conclusion. Um, there's a number of other cases that I think are good ones. One that I, I often like to refer to. This was investigated by Kevin Randall a number of years ago. It took place at, outside Las Vegas in 1962, April of 62. Um, again, a lot to go into, but I think the Project Blue Book records themselves are deceptive on this. And when you investigate it, there's a very strong case to be made that an object streaked across the United States. Uh, two air bases attempted interceptions of this. And that it crashed sometime out somewhere outside of Las Vegas in um, 1962. Uh, there's quite a few others, but one of the things that I, I like to uh, point out is, in addition to the crash retrieval evidence, there are story after story, claim after claim. I think good ones in some cases of individuals who, you know, would come to researchers and say. I was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and on one occasion I was assigned the job of guarding uh, a number of alien bodies. Or, you know, someone who would talk about 
acquiring information in one way or another of alien bodies being held in storage within the U.S. National Security Complex. A doctor who approached the researcher Leonard Stringfield years ago who talked about his autopsying of an alien body um, back in the 50s. And on and on, a lot of these stories came out during the 1970s and 80s. And I think that's also part of the mix. So when I look at the sum total of what appear to be crash retrieval stories and cases of these, you know, these other stories that come out that, that point to alien bodies, I think that, in fact, this is probably more real than not. And I think that there's a reality that we've had crash retrievals with the um, possession deep within the bowels of our national security apparatus of alien technology and bodies. And I think that is a huge part of the UFO reality. And I think it's a significant aspect of the cover-up. You know, it's one thing to cover up information if if you just don't know what you're dealing with and these objects are zipping around. But sure. it's another thing if you've acquired technology and you're hiding that. That's That gets serious. And I think that's what's been going on. What do you think of the Jackie Gleason story? Oh, well, yes. This is a very interesting story. So Jackie Gleason, the entertainer, comedian, uh, was – one of the most knowledgeable people in the world relating to the UFO phenomenon, uh, Jackie Gleason. That is fascinating. Is, <laughs> he, he was incredibly, he had one of the best libraries of UFO books and literature probably in the world. He was extremely knowledgeable about this through the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Jackie Gleason, and you know, he was one of the most famous men in the country. Yeah. Um, he knew everyone, everyone knew him. And he hobnobbed with a lot of Air Force generals. Um, and there was one occasion he's talking with a UFO uh, – with a, a re reporter. I think it was a journalist, Bob Considine, at a, at a club in New York City called Toot Shores. It was very famous. And Jackie Gleason and, and Considine are arguing about UFOs and Jackie is saying they're real and Considine is saying they're not real. And an Air Force general walks by and said, Jackie's right, uh, according to the story. But the, you know, the other thing about Jackie Gleason is that he was a very good friend of President Richard Nixon. They were close friends, and they did a um, a lot of photo ops together, um, and they just were gen genuinely good friends. So in um, I think it was 1972, after I think it was right after Nixon's reelection, they were doing um, a uh, an event, a golfing event in Florida, and you know it, if nothing else, Nixon, who was close friends with Gleason, would have had to have known of Gleason's obsession with UFOs. That in itself is interesting. But according to the story, and Gleason told this story to his wife at the time, who wrote about it in an unpublished manuscript, and also uh, confirmed it late years later to Larry Warren, who was a UFO witness and became friends with Gleason. Oh, according okay. to what Gleason said, to these two people, um, after their photo op, Nixon came to his house with a limo driver, Oh, no, unaccompanied, excuse me. Nixon escaped uh, secret security and drove Gleason uh, to Homestead Air Force Base in Florida where he was able to get in, of course, he's the president, and showed him alien bodies. And Gleason, you know, in describing this, 
said at first I thought these were these were children, dead children in, in a glass in glass cases until I got closer and I realized these are not children, these are not humans. And Gleason went home after this and um went on a drinking spree. He was so um shook up by this. Uh told his wife Beverly Beverly McKittrick at the time, and she reported it later and then um told it to uh, Larry Warren. So it's a case of, you know, someone having a strong belief and a lot of knowledge, having it confirmed to him by his friend who just happened to be the president of the United States. So is it true? You know, we don't know, but I think it's true. Yes, I think it's true. I don't see any reason to discount this story. Um, I know Larry Warren personally. Um, I have no reason to doubt Larry Warren whatsoever. I don't know Gleason's ex-wife, Beverly McKittrick, but I do know she she wrote about this in detail. So that's the story. Yeah, that's an interesting story. It really yeah. is. That's that's one that's just uh, – I've always found that utterly fascinating. I, I want to talk a little bit, Richard, about – oh, before I go to that though, Kecksburg was also very interesting. And yes, it did. Kecksburg, yeah. Kecksburg is one of those that – you know, the, the whole idea of the Nazi bail, we talked about the Nazi technology – Right. And, you know, Joseph Farrell writes about that as well. And there's that acorn shape that Kecksburg UFO supposedly had is very reminiscent of that. It is indeed. Uh, the bell, the Glock, it was called in German. This is, uh, you know, it has to be mentioned that this is, the bell is not historically truly confirmed. All right. It's, it's very possibly, True. it's possible that it did exist. Uh, the story about the bell is that during the later period of World War II, some of the German scientists, they were involved in some very advanced and unconventional science. This is, this is true. And among that um, you know, would be this thing called the bell, which was in um, what is now Czechoslovakia or, or the Czech Republic, where they were. Um, it would involve a, a, a bell-shaped object, like an acorn-shaped object within which there was this rotating uh, plasma, a rot- excuse me, rotating mercury, high-speed rot- rotating mercury that would um, create a kind of a plasma that would create a kind of anti-gravity effect in some way and was also very dangerous, would cause extreme amounts of um, electromagnetism that would be harmful to a human body and in fact supposedly resulted in the death. And this all came out, um, my, what we're told, in the post-World War II uh, war, tr- war trials that took place and this story came out at the time. It's, it's totally possible that this happened and, and according to the story, a lot of the scientists who were involved in it were executed at the end of the war. Now from that we get the Kecksburg case where you do have – consistent reports of an acorn-shaped object crashing in the forests of western Pennsylvania in December 1965. Um, I've never been totally comfortable connecting the bell to the Kecksburg crash, um, but it has to be said, all right, the attempts to explain this as a Soviet satellite have failed. Uh, right. The um, NASA's uh, engineer James Oberg has tried to do that, and I don't think he, he's made a good case at all. There is no satellite explanation for this that really has made sense to me. Um, there's definitely the case that we have major military security 
involved in the retrieval of, Ke- of tr- the Kecksburg object, uh, very much like with Roswell and some of these other crash retrieval cases as well. There was one in Bolivia in 1978, same thing. But in Kecksburg, yes. Um, what this was, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I'm not totally comfortable making the, the Bell connection to it yet, but I talked with uh, Stan Gordon, who's probably the, the best expert on the Kecksburg crash that there is. He's looked into this for years, and he is very dismissive of that, but that doesn't mean he's right. I don't know. It's, you know, we have a lot of theories out there. Right. And I, and I think sometimes things get meshed together as well. And it just looking at the shape of it and saying that that could be that, but it may not necessarily be that, you know, I, I find mean, it interesting though. Right. The bell in uh, the, the, the German lore is not something that was a flying apparatus. Yeah. It was a device that produced a, a mild or some anti-gravity effect from what I understand, but it wasn't a device that was like a, a, a flying machine of any sort. You also hear about weird stuff like time travel involved with it too. So how much of it is, is mythology and how much of it is fact? That's all debatable. I think at this point with it, it is well, one of the interesting things about the UFO phenomenon. And I, I talk about this in the book, by the way, in my science section, which actually was one of my most fun sections to write. Um, is that when you understand contemporary physics, we understand that our, that space and time as we, in our common sense, that that's really an incorrect, you know, space isn't something that just goes and goes and goes. And time is also not something that just goes like an arrow into the future. Not true. That's Newtonian physics. And Newtonian physics works very well in many ways, but it's not, it doesn't work fully. And what we understand, of course, is that space and time are a fabric, that they are kind of intertwined and that they are affected by things. That, um, so that if you're, you, we can do things that will and do have an effect on space and time. What we lack typically is a sufficient amount of energy to have major effects on space and time. But, but we know that we can do this. So um, if there are objects that are able to create a kind of space-time bubble around themselves and um, you know, move through space-time like this – uh, mathematician Miguel Alcubierre came up with equations 25 years ago that basically proved that warp drive is a possibility. And his way of discussing this is that space and time truly can be kind of bent and we can manipulate them. Um, so if that's so, then that means it's not just space, but it's time. That time somehow can be manipulated in, in one way or another. Does that mean time travel as we understand it is possible? Well, that's a bit of a stretch from what we know, but you know, time can be probably manipulated in some way or another. So what's interesting right. to me about the UFO subject is that this phenomenon really does lead us to some of the most cutting-edge questions in every area you can look at, whether different scientific areas or our politics or our history – you know, what, what is our true history? Um, all of these and much more, the UFO phenomenon takes us right there. And for that reason, if for no other, the UFO phenomenon really demands attention from some of our best and brightest minds. It's worthy. Uh, yeah. it, it, it takes us into new paradigms, whatever direction we look. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, I really do. It, it helps us to, I think, to understand and, and also to get us, get our minds going into these different directions. Uh, what I want to hit on a little bit with the history is the military's response and specifically the Air Force's response to UFOs. And we're talking about the, you know, Project Sign, Grudge, Blue Book. The, yeah. Can you go over some of that uh, and Absolutely. how they eventually in 1969, eventually closed the, – the case is, is closed by the Condon Report. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, this is an important part of our history here. So, um, you know, I would preface it by saying this. Like if, if – when you're in the classified world and, – and I would emphasize I have not been in the military. I have not been part of the intelligence community. I merely study them. But within the classified world, like let's say you and I did a classified mission together and let's say your clearance was a little bit higher than mine. So you were cleared to know more. So what that would mean is we might do the same mission together, but when we were debriefed on this mission, you would be told something a little bit more than what I would be told. And it would be in line with what you're cleared to know. And I would be told things that I'm cleared to know. And then presumably there's things that you would you would not be cleared to know either. So we're told versions of the truth. That's how it works. And I, this is the same thing applies to the UFO phenomenon in general. So when we look at our history, the public history of the Air Force investigation into UFOs includes things like Project Sign and Project Grudge and Project Blue Book. These are the public investigations of the UFO phenomenon that we know about. There are, I believe, classified investigations of the UFO phenomenon that have never been acknowledged. But we'll leave that for the moment. What we know for sure is that in 1947, the United States uh, leading generals in the U.S. Air Force, like General Nathan Twining, spoke explicitly about this phenomenon as being real, not visionary or fictitious, as he said to another general in a memo. And he okay. described explicit characteristics of these objects, including – that they were circular or elliptical in shape, flat on bottom and domed on top. Ask yourself what in 1947 would fit that description. Much, you know, even today, really, but certainly 1947. So, so we know that there was, at the highest levels of the U.S. Air Force, and Twining later became chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force, we know that there was a strong acknowledgement that this was not make-believe, this was real. Now, the government at the same time was telling the public, oh, no, this is imaginary. There's nothing to it. But within the classified world, they had a totally different understanding. So what Twining authorized was the creation of the first of the known investigations into the UFO phenomenon known as Project Sign. And that evolved. That became later known as Project Grudge. And then by the early 50s, Project Blue Book. And that remained Project Blue Book through the 1960s until it was closed down in 1969. That's the quick history of it. Now, what we know is that <clears throat> through all those years, all right, they would collect UFO reports from the public. They would do investigations, or sometimes they would pretend to do investigations, because basically they, there was too many reports that they couldn't really do this. And we also know that from the mid-1950s onward, they were charged explicitly to uh, explain away rather than explain these sightings. And that was their mandate. Um, and it became so 
obvious that by the 1960s, people would make fun of Project Blue Book, you know, in terms of oh, explaining these things away in ridiculous fashions. Um, by the mid-1960s, there was a, a wave of UFO sightings in the U.S. that was so significant that there were people in Congress, including future President Gerald R. Ford, whose constituents were seeing UFOs, and they were demanding that, you know, the Air Force explanations of these were really not adequate, and we needed something a little bit more scientific. And out of that came what became called the Condon Committee, and this was based out of the University of Colorado, led by scientist Edward Condon. And this was supposed to be uh, an independent academic study of the UFO phenomenon. And the Air Force paid them half a million dollars to look into it. And the idea was once and for all, we're going to have the scientists look into it and they'll decide is this legit or not. What we know now, and it was known at the time, was that that was a rigged game. The Condon Committee, absolutely under Edward Condon, who used to make fun of UFOs the whole time that he did this program, and his second in command, an intelligence operative named Robert Lowe, were adamant that the UFO conclusion would never be a positive one, that they would, it would always be a negative one. And, it, and that a number of the scientists who were involved noticed this attitude, and it caused a mutiny midway into the program, into the project. And a lot of those scientists were fired midway in, and a bunch of new scientists were brought in, and uh, the conclusion was there's nothing to UFOs. What's interesting about that study is that actually if you read the Condon Committee report, about a third of all the cases were unexplained. There's right. a lot of a lot of unexplained UFOs, and a yes. few of them were unbelievable unexplained cases that you really have to wonder. But the conclusion that Condon wrote, and that's really all the press would read, yes. was that the Air Force should drop Project Blue Book, that there was really no scientific value to this. Nothing would be gained uh, scientifically from studying it, and they should just drop it. And that was the conclusion. And the proof is, is that that was the conclusion from all along, and that was what they wanted. Everything yes. that I've read about the Condon Report, including your book, points out that that's exactly what they wanted. They just wanted it, the, the case closed. Right. Uh, the Air Force wasn't going to spend any more money. They weren't going to spend any more time on it. And they just wanted some rubber stamp of approval from the scientific community. That That is exactly my conclusion. Yeah. Absolutely. That basically this is a monkey on their back. They had to get it off. Uh, in other words, you know, they're, they're studying UFOs through Project Blue Book. All the Air Force really wanted to do by the 1960s was to dump Project Blue Book, but they needed a reason to do it. That was their, their biggest problem. They needed a pretext to get rid of it, and they never felt that they could do it. And by having this academic study that was a rigged game, that gave them the pretext to say, yep, see, there's nothing to this. We're going to get rid of UFOs. We're not going to study it. Well, we know, by the way, in 1969, there was an Air Force general named Carol Bollander who was um, – he wrote a classified memo. He knew all about the Blue Book program and he pointed out, he said, any UFO store, uh, reports that affect national security, in other words, serious ones, are not used uh, – do not go through Blue Book channels anyway. And what he was really saying is that the closing of Project Blue Book does not mean the U.S. military will not investigate UFOs. If it's serious, if it's national security, we have other channels by which to um, investigate UFOs. And, um, and so essentially what he was saying 
was that Blue Book was irrelevant. It was a public relations facade, essentially. And, and in Blue Book itself, was it um, wasn't it like ten percent of the cases were not were not explainable? A little lower than that. Now I think the uh, number was uh, let's see, seven hundred and seven hundred and one out of twelve thousand. So what is that? That's like I think like five percent were explained, but, but even that's, that's an irrelevant number. That's still so much. I mean, that's a lot, 700. <laughs> well, what I have argued uh, for years is that the blue book numbers are, are almost useless. Really? Because if you really look at their, their unexplained cases, particularly in the last 10 years, blue book, it, it seems to me made a point that the only the most boring cases were the un, unexplained ones. Like if you, if you saw a little light, uh, in the sky, move this way and then that way, and then go away, like in in the distance. That would be a blue book unknown, like really ho hum, boring stuff. Uh, in other words, it was as if anything that was interesting never made it to a blue book unknown status. The boring cases <laughs> became their unknowns, and I think this was by design. In other words, blue book really did not have an investigative capability during its last decade, anyway, decade and a half. So. Everything that Blue Book did was, in my opinion, a uh, complete charade that none of it has to be taken, can be taken seriously as scientific investigation anyway. Um, there were genuinely amazing UFO cases during those years. Not all of them became Blue Book cases. So Blue Book really was a public relations facade. Right, right. Even so, the last thing I would say is the closing down of Blue Book was still, uh, I would consider it kind of a tragedy in American history and the reason even though Blue Book was a was a sham, you could argue it was still our sham. That is the public paid for it and the public, um, at least in theory, it was beholden to the public. Once Blue Book closed down, the US military could say to the public, Oh well, we don't really investigate UFOs. So if you see a UFO, too bad, go look into it on your own. Yeah, don't, don't, come uh, don't come to us. And that's that's a failure of democracy. As I would say, because you know who who pays for the military? I pay for it. You right. do taxes, right? And so, my position is that if we're going to have a true representative government here, that is responsive to the people, and if this important thing is happening, that is this UFO phenomenon is happening. Hell yes, I want my government to look into it, and I want their conclusions because they're they belong to me. They're not they're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'm a citizen. That's the attitude that we should have. And so the failure of the closing of Blue Book um, is, in a sense, really the failure, a part of a failure of democratic representative government. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Um, <clears throat> after the Condon report, you have this era where uh, really before, but more after you have these civilian UFO groups like MUFON, yeah. APRO. These and you do a good job in the book of showing how these groups were infiltrated by intelligence agency people. Uh, some of them were even set up by intelligence agency people. Right. And there's also a lot of disinformation that goes on. And I wanted to get also your opinion on uh, Richard Doty and what happened with him. Sure. So, um, well, you know, I would point out that. All of the really important research on this matter, this has been done by other people who preceded me long ago. But what I have tried to do is to 
become very aware of all of the different research that these people have had and, and try to make sense out of it in my best way. So what we do know in the UFO group known as NICAP, for example, National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP was founded back in the 50s and it was for many years the most prominent American UFO group before there was MUFON, there was NICAP. Uh, NICAP was absolutely infiltrated by U.S. intelligence right out of the gate in the beginning. And um, and it does look like there was a kind of coup in NICAP to oust the longtime director, Donald Kehoe, um, with people who were definite CIA-connected individuals that then really ran that organization into the ground over the next 10 years during the 70s. Um, and I'm not the first person to discuss this by any means. APRO, same story. That was run by James and Coral Lorenzen. Uh, they strongly believed for years that they were monitored by U.S. intelligence. They, I think, were absolutely right. Uh, APRO was mentioned as an organization that needed to be monitored in the famous Robertson panel sponsored by the CIA in 1953. Um, and a number of their people, including William Moore, who was an APRO investigator, clearly had CIA intelligence community connections. And then there was Richard Doty, who you mentioned. And yeah. Doty was a um, Air Force special investigations officer. Many have suspected, I'm not proven, that he was also connected with CIA. One thing Doty did, this is in the late 70s, early 80s, after, okay, this is after Watergate, after Freedom of Information Act was strengthened, when thousands of pages of documents suddenly were obtained by researchers through FOIA of U.S. government involvement in UFOs. This is so important. So at that time in the late 70s, it looked like investigators might actually be able to prove that there was a UFO cover-up. Sure as heck looked like it, right? At the same time, you've got leaks now about crash retrievals like Roswell, like Aztec, um, and others coming out. So there was this two-pronged threat to secrecy, one through official documents, one through crash retrieval stories. Within that steps people like uh, Richard Doty and others in the U.S. intelligence community. And what does it look like happened? It looks like um, he promoted um, documents, maybe the Majestic 12 documents that would be um, – you know, posed to investigators as legitimate when in fact they might have elements of disinformation in them. Um, they might be total disinformation for all we know. So it was a way to sort of throw investigators off, off the path of genuine UFO documents. And this could very well have been his role. This is something that is it's difficult for me to conclude even now you know, what is the truth of the MJ-12 documents? This has been highly contentious for years. I have never felt totally comfortable, as some researchers say, that these are total, complete hoax right out of the gate. I'm not sure that I believe this. There is too much uh, confirmable data in those documents, in my opinion, that are very suggestive that there could be truth there. On the other hand, it is possible that there there was this attempt to throw researchers off the path through these documents that cannot be confirmed um, because they cannot be confirmed. The MJ-12 documents, 
you know, they're very, very um, explosive. They're very dramatic and they are not confirmable. So the real question is, um, what can we make of them? My position on them has always been as follows. I am inclined to think that they are worthy of investigation still, and I am inclined to think that there could be truth in them. But I am not, I have never been of the opinion that they can be used as proven, historical, valid documentation. Even right. now, I could never take that position. There are researchers like Robert Hastings who um, have, he's really, Robert has continued to go after me uh, and criticize me because he believes that I'm a, a unabashed supporter of the MJ-12 documents. It's true in a way, but it's not totally true. I feel like uh, my position is, as I've just stated, I think that they are not simple hoaxes and that there is probably truth in them, but we are not responsible if we just take them as historical, um, you know, as fully confirmable historical data. They are, they are extremely controversial. Extremely. And and actually the the one thing that I would say is it's not just the original MJ 12 documents, which are just seven pages, but the, we're known as the majestic documents, which are, if you print them all off, it's almost two inches thick or an inch and a half thick, uh, which are all available on the website of Ryan and, and Bob Wood. Um, along with a lot of analysis of those, of those papers. Um, I think these, these are, if they, if they are a hoax, they're beyond in sophistication, anything that's imaginable. And the question is, who are they designed for? Are they designed for the Russians to make the Russians think that uh, UFOs are real? Well, if they are a hoax, they are almost themselves proof a confirmation of the reality of UFOs. The Russians aren't stupid after all. You're not going to be able to convince them of the reality of this if they don't have their own reasons to believe. So it's it's really, it's an interesting subject and I think um, it's absolutely worthy of our best efforts to look into. But no, even now I'm not convinced that I can just say, oh yeah, these are confirmed historical documents. Okay. But they are worth, they are worth reading and I think we can probably learn. They're worth... Uh, pursuing in terms of leads. I would say that. I want to talk about in the time that we have left with you, Richard, about alien abduction and the contact experience. Sure. And I've I've actually, myself, I, I've really come to not like the term alien abduction, as I think I've said many times. Uh-huh. But because it, it, it doesn't seem to fully encompass what actually happens in those events. It seems that there is much more to it and it's more, I prefer the, the, the term alien contact and you know, what are we dealing with, with these alien abduction and these contact experiences? Are we looking at the same entities involved that just taking on different forms? It's a good question. I don't. I don't know how I, I would easily answer that. I think that there is a lot going on. Yeah. I think uh, one thing we have to acknowledge is that this is a the the whole con the idea of contact. All right, you've got we've got what what people believe is benign contact, and we have what people feel is not benign contact. And there's a whole array there. In any case, um, it's this is personal. It's important. And sometimes it takes a personal toll and sometimes it it involves a personal transformation on the negative and on the positive. I've spoken in detail to people who've had both of these types of reactions. So however you look at it, it's important. There is something happening 
people are having encounters with these intelligences, these beings that officially speaking are not supposed to exist, but I think they do exist. It's happening. So it is essential for us to come to terms with what is going on. And in all likelihood, this is probably the single most important aspect of the phenomenon because it's affecting people directly. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are um, simply uh, anecdotally, I have come to, to think that this is a phenomenon that has affected people who have what we might call psychic capabilities, people who meditate. There are some bizarre symbolic uh, and possibly even occult types of symbolism uh, that goes on here. I've, I've spoken to people, a number of them who've been woken out of their beds at 3.33 in the morning and have had what they think have been experiences. Now, what yes. is significant about 3.33 a.m.? I've tried to look into this. Um, it ha- seems to have a cult symbolism. Um, in other words, there's strangeness to this phenomenon that somehow, in my view, is part of this mix. I, I don't know that I would say it's as simple as beings from another planet who are taking us to manipulate our DNA, although that may be part of it. But I, I feel that there's a, a level of complexity that is even beyond this. Uh, these beings, whoever, whatever they are, if, if I were to go through all of the data that's available to me that I think is legitimate, I would say that they have mind, capa- mental capabilities that are so vastly beyond what we have. They have the ability not simply to communicate telepathically the way that we communicate with our words, but that they have the ability to manipulate space-time in some way that we normally do not. They have the ability to manage our memories in a very, very sophisticated way. Um, I think they have the ability to enter what we would call our reality and leave our reality, our space-time reality. That's, that's my best working theory. It's like we're fish in a pond, you know, the, um, um, and, and our reality is the water that's around us. We're not even aware of the water, but they can come into our pond and they can leave our pond. And we detect them when they come in. We can sense that there's someone here, but we don't really know where they go when they leave. I, th- I think I, that's my own little theory is that they do this. They come into our reality and they leave our reality. Yes. And, and that we may be dealing with something that's, as you said, not necessarily an extraterrestrial as in something that's from another planet, but maybe something that's from, I don't know, lack of a better term, another dimension or another realm it's or possible. something like that. I mean, even, uh, you know, you mentioned in the book, you know, you talk about the, the researchers, Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, right. and, uh, but you know, you talk about John Mack and, and John Mack, it seems that he was never willing to say that these are space aliens. He's willing to say this is a very profound experience that yeah. people have and that it mean that it could mean so much more than what is uh than just an alien from Zeta Reticuli and that you're dealing with something that is very almost shamanic in nature. Like our yeah. good friend Mike Cullen talks right. about. I feel that we can learn a lot from John Mack's perspective. And I yeah. actually I was friends with Bud Hopkins and I am friends with David Jacobs, and I think that they have deep deep insights into this. So I don't, I don't think it's an either or element of it. I think that right. those researchers were looking at something um, 
that they considered dark and unsettling. That is David and, and Bud. Um, John Mack, you know, was also not unaware of that aspect of it, incidentally. But he he did see this uh, phenomenon as something that had the potential to open us to new possibilities of reality. I do think that was his perspective. Um, I do. I'm inclined to look at this as as most probably an extraterrestrial phenomenon, even now. But extraterrestrials who have the ability to to move in and out of our dimensional reality, I guess that's the best way I can put it. But the, the fact is that I don't know where they're from. And I've looked into this for 20, uh, what, 23, 24 years now. And I still don't really know. I'm, where are they from? What are they? I don't see that as a weakness on my part. I see that as a complexity right. of the phenomenon itself. And the fact is that we human beings, I think there are elements of our reality that we do struggle to understand because it's complex. I had a dog years and years ago. I'll never forget this. I was feeding my dog his can of dog food and I was observing him as I was getting his can open and he was he knew I was about to feed him. He's a dog. He's smart. He knows that I'm about to feed him his dog food. And as I was observing him eat, I realized, well, you know, my dog is intelligent. He knows me. He knew, knew that I was about to feed him dog food. But he did not know certain things. He did not know how humans get the food into the can. He did not know that we have factories that make dog food. And it's not that he didn't know. It's that he couldn't yeah. know because he's a dog, right? Dogs right, have right. Way. And I thought, well, gee, Richard, you're so smart. So your dog's at this level. You're at that level, maybe a tiny bit higher. What's beyond that? What's beyond that? What's way beyond that? We have this uh, attitude. We often forget that we have our own limitations of how we can perceive reality. Our brains work in a certain way. We order, we organize reality spatially and temporally. But that doesn't mean that that's how space and time actually are. You know, every creature has its own way of organizing reality and us included. And so we have to remind ourselves when we're running into something as complex as this UFO phenomenon, my take on it these days is that we're actually encountering something that does indeed represent intelligence that is orders of magnitude beyond our own. And that is why, that's why it's a mystery. That's why we have a hard time. That's why like not any single explanation really seems to be totally satisfying. Yes. Not the extraterrestrial, not the interdimensional, not the time travel, not the Nazi technology hypothesis, <laughs> not, not any of them. Yeah. They, they all have, they all have their, their shortcomings. I, I'm right there with you on that, Richard, because I really feel like the more, the more I've studied this, you know, a few years ago, I was pretty convinced that I knew what was going on. Now I'm not as convinced as, as I've studied it more and more and talked to more people like yourself that are experts in, in this field. The more I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I can only tell you what people have experienced and, and has happened. And, and I think once you, I, I think once you, get out of the realm of dogma and being dogmatic, you begin to think you begin to see all these different ideas and things coming to light. Right. I think a lot of our problems would be solved in this world by uh, yeah. three simple words. I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and if, yes. We, if we just said that, and you know, for someone like in, in my position, I'm, I'm somewhat publicly known in this field and uh, people often will come to me and they want me to have a definitive answer and there's a, there's a strong 
uh, temptation. I've identified this and I've seen it for a researcher to uh, act like they've got the answers. And it's a slippery slope. Like you really don't want to do it because, because this subject is so much more complex than anything that I would have ever thought 20 plus years ago when I got into it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a strength to say that I don't know and we don't know. And, and that opens us up to really true exploration of what is act, honestly the most fascinating mystery of our lifetimes is this subject of UFOs. I am totally convinced it is the most fascinating uh, and worthwhile area of study because by looking into it, we, we do get the chance to shatter old, tired, hackneyed, cliched paradigms that we all grew up supposed, supposed to believe in and that uh, don't do us any justice. That if we're really going to move to the next level of whatever it is we're destined to be, that we need to shed the illusions that we were raised with about our world and about ourselves. That's the only way toward true growth is by shedding those illusions. This is something John Mack talked about, actually, right. and I fully agree. Right. And I've taken to heart. We need to shed the illusions with which we were raised. And the UFO phenomenon is, in my opinion at this point, the best tool with which to, sh to help us get rid of those illusions and to open our, our minds and our understanding to, of, of a world into something totally different that you know might be a little more worthy of a mature human civilization. Yes, and we can we can use that as a as a maybe a template to move on. I, I want to ask you about uh, about David Jacobs and some of his work because we've had Doctor Jacobs on uh, a couple of times, and I really like him. But I see him as someone that is is very dogmatic about what he says is going on. He's very materialist in a way in his thinking, uh, which I understand uh, from, from his background. But do you think that there is some, that there could be some kind of hybridization program like he says? Yes, I do. I think that, um, in fact, I think that there is something like that probably going on. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. David Jacobs, uh, I hear there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with a lot of his conclusions. I, and he's quite aware of this, I know. His, um, his stuff is utterly frightening. I'm going to tell you it, that. It is. He, he is terrified of his work. Yeah. I'm terrified of his work. I've asked him about this. Um, he's very upfront about it. And uh, I, I admire and like David uh, as well as I, I really respect his research. He's probably among the, the most handful of knowledgeable researchers on the UFO phenomenon in the world. You're really not going to find anyone who knows significantly more and, and, or even, even more. Um, and I, that, does not, that does not mean I agree with all of his conclusions about this phenomenon. I don't, actually. But I respect him. And, and in the idea of hybridization, yes, I believe that he's onto something. He, David has meticulously... You know, people want to criticize hypnotic regression. Fine, be my guest. But the fact is that you don't simply have to rely on hypnotic regression to get this idea of hybrids. I have spoken to people who've given me evidence of hybrids. I haven't used hypnotic regression on anybody. Uh, ditto with David Jacobs. Not all of this comes out through hypnotic regression. That's true. Um, and and when we what we call hypnotic regression is typically 
little more than just advanced relaxation of the subject. It's it's not like, you know, watch the watch, you know, you're going to dance like a chicken. That's not really what it always is. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's just um, an advanced form of relaxation to help the person remember things a little better. That's really all that it is. And, and I do believe that over the decades, I've read all of his, his major books. He has, um, yes, he has con- uncovered, I think, reasonably that there is a hybridization program going on. I think that there is one. There is one story in your book. I read this a couple of nights ago, and uh, this one is interesting and scary at the same time. And it's just damned strange. And that's the story about the woman telling you about when she was a girl, the the blonde couple in church. Oh, my goodness. Yes, indeed. Uh. Um, yeah, that's actually one of I, I have a bookend uh, stories. I have, that one often goes with another one that was told to me by a, a retired Air Force colonel who also had his encounter in a, in a Vegas casino with blonde male female couple. Her story, uh, she told me this. I was with my uh, my wife at the time, Karen. We were at a conference, and she was this woman was with her husband, and she just told us. Um, when she was about 15 years old in the mid sixties in Western Pennsylvania, in a small town where everyone knew everyone, she was in church with her mother and they, and in church, they really knew everyone. It was a tiny little town. And in this church walks this absolutely drop dead, gorgeous blonde couple, male and female. They're dressed to the nines, perfectly blue clothing. She's astonished by these, this beautiful couple, you know, they look like they're out of a fancy Hollywood movie. They sit down and she's mesmerized by them. And eventually she says to me that she heard them thinking to each other. She heard them in her mind having a conversation and it shocked her. And the conversation was essentially one saying to the other, yes, we appear to be fitting in fairly well here. (laughs) And the other one thought back, yes, except for the girl behind us who can hear us. Um, she, She pointed out that this couple didn't really seem to know how to go through your typical Catholic mass. I grew up going to Catholic mass, so I knew sit, kneel, you do your sign of the cross and all of that. This couple did not seem to know how to do any of that. Uh, They were looking around and figuring it out. But anyway, um, that's all she heard them thinking. They get out of the church at the end of mass. They're gone, and she follows them. Her mother's yelling after her, get back here, young lady. She goes anyway. She works her way through the crowd. She's following this couple. They go across the parking lot. She's following them across the parking lot. They go over this hill, down this hill toward a wooded area, and she's following them until she sees another figure who she he was standing at the, at the woods where they were walking, and she said he looked exactly like the television character Lurch from the Adams Family TV show, if you remember that. Yeah, I actually, I actually kind of uh, pictured Slender Man, really, but yes, right. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But anyway, so that's what he looked like to her, and uh, and he he was so intimidating to her that she stopped in her tracks, and she just watched this beautiful blonde couple uh, walk by this tall character into the woods, and he turned around and he walked, he followed them into the woods. That was her story. Um, I know we're I know we're running out of time here, but very quickly, uh, uh, two years earlier. I got a story from a retired um, U.S. Air Force colonel who happened to be a Ph.D. And he told me the story with his wife, who was a very lovely lady. And they had a story of the two of them with a friend of theirs, a woman. In a, they were having just downtime in a Vegas casino, having fun. And the friend 
who happened to be rather psychic, according to the colonel, stopped them and pointed this or motioned toward this drop-dead gorgeous blonde woman dressed in blue, perfect. She said, she's not one of us. She's not like us. She's not human. (laughs) Now, you know, if you go to Vegas, you find beautiful men and women there all over the place. But this was apparently different. And so the, the woman and the colonel's wife went down the escalator to get away. They were afraid. He's saying he's looking at this woman. And he said, then I heard her in my mind. And he said, I heard her thinking to me saying, essentially, what do you think you're looking at? Nothing to see here. Just keep it moving. You know, like, like a cop on the beat, essentially. And at that moment, she's joined by this beautiful blonde man wearing blue they're clearly together. They're conferring. He can't hear them thinking at this time. But then they walk toward the escalator where he is. And he's thinking, great, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to say something. I don't know what I'll say, but I'm going to say something. And then they walk right by him and he says nothing. But then he gets behind them on the escalator as they're going down. And, uh, and by the way, the wife then jumped in at this point in the story. She said, oh, yes, we were, we were so afraid. We were standing behind the slot machines looking at them. <laughs> she was laughing as she said this. She was very endearing. Anyway, there he's behind them on the escalator. And he said to me, and once again, I heard them thinking. And they were thinking a conversation. It was something like, yes, he hears us. Yes, he's not a big deal. Don't worry. He's not part of the program. He's not anyone important. We don't need to worry about him. Or w- thoughts to that effect. You know, They get down to the bottom of the escalator. They walk off. They're never seen again. Um, there's a follow-up to this So story. strange. In which, yeah, the follow-up is the the woman, the psychic friend, also did hip, hypnotic regression. And they decided that she would regress the colonel so that he would remember their thoughts better, right? So he goes to her house a couple of days later. She's in this little dead-end cul-de-sac neighborhood. And um, every time he tries to lay down for a regression, they hear this construction noise and jackhammers and all this noise outside – they're never able to identify where it's coming from, and they, they decide not to do the regression. That day. <laughs> he says, no problem. I'll be back in town in about a month. How about we do it then? She's like, great. The day before he's scheduled to go back in that area, he calls her and says, hey, I'm going to be in your town tomorrow. Can we do that regression? And she – this is all according to the colonel. She says, what regression? He says, we, we did this last month, remember? No, I don't remember. Don't you remember the blonde couple in the Las Vegas casino? And according to the colonel, she had no memory of any of this. Really? Yeah. So that to me is – and you know, I believe this colonel. He, the colonel is a well-known person. Um, he's a known quantity. He's a known entity, I guess you could say. So that's his story. So what's going on here? You know, you can do a lot of extrapolations. There's this underbelly. There's this maybe a covert element to this phenomenon. Who wiped this woman's memory? Was it the aliens? Was it a U.S. black budget group? We don't know. But um, I would say that there's something important. It's like there's a fence around our reality, our circumscribed reality. But beyond that fence is an infrastructure. Beyond that fence is a reality and indeed a civilization or maybe multiple civilizations. And essentially, we as a public... It's like we're tied into this chair with a blindfold around us and we're not allowed to see what's going on. But we will, we will see. Mm-hmm. I think we're, that we as a culture, as a civilization are going through our own revolution. And we will 
we will find a way to break free of these chains and we will, I think, begin the process of, be, of starting to figure out what it is we're dealing with publicly so we can have a public conversation about this. At that point, that I think is when our true history is going to begin and we will have the chance to fulfill whatever it is that we're supposed to fulfill. As it is right now, I think we're a civilization that's being spoon-fed lies and, and uh, fictions and, and uh, children's stories. But I think there's a much better future waiting for us if we have the bravery to face it. Let's hope so, Richard. I think that's a good place to end this. Uh, real quick, where can people get the book? What is next for you? And you're also working on another book that's mm-hmm. coming out soon that I'm very excited and I want to have you back on for. Uh, tell us about that. Absolutely. Well, I have a website. It's called richarddolanpress.com. Uh, it's called that because I publish books by myself and by other authors, and they're fascinating authors, all of them. So richarddolanpress.com will get you there. Um, I am working on a book right now that is not UFO-related. It is a book on the history of false flags. That is, uh, evil things done by intelligence communities and governments, blowing up buildings, killing people, frightening people, and blaming it on another party in order to pursue an objective that you could not otherwise justify. That's a false flag. 9-11 will be the centerpiece of that book. But 9-11 is certainly not the only false flag. So I'm doing a history of false flags primarily in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, that's my main project right now. I'm hoping to get that done. I don't, I don't want to give a deadline for it uh, because it's, it's involved, but it will be done, and I'm looking forward to getting it wrapped up. Excellent. Excellent, sir. Thank you so much, Richard. You have been an awesome guest. I've, I've loved being on here, Adam. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. And Rob, was there anything you want to say real quick? No, no. just wanted to jump in and say thanks again. It was good to talk to you again, man. I Absolutely. very much enjoyed uh, being here with you guys, and um, I hope hope the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Richard. Stay on the line for us. Uh, guys, we're going to be right back to close everything out on Conspiranormal. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're back on Conspiracy Normal. Amazing interview. Love, oh, yeah. love that guy. Absolutely. I mean, we got we got to sit uh, sit down with him briefly, but it was with a group of people before in Minneapolis at yeah. the Paradigm Symposium, and this is a much more much more personal, in depth conversation. The guy is fascinating, right? Because uh, Paradigm Symposium was just kind of crazy. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So uh, we were busy. He was busy, and uh, that was. Uh, that was a really good interview, man. I'm glad we could get to go through the history. And really, truly, I, we did not cover even probably half of what's in that book. Right. There's so much. I, I, I greatly recommend that book for everybody. It's uh, uh, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Um, really, incre- really incredible book. One of the best books on UFOs that I've ever read. Huh. Maybe that's something we can start doing with our new website is posting uh – Post up some Amazon links. Yeah, we need Kindle to, links. We should do that. Tell everybody about our new website, by the way. Uh, yeah, so we decided to uh, create a little a little hub for what we do here, and uh, kind of wanted to reach out to everybody for for suggestions. It's sort of bare bones at the moment, but we want it to sort of be a, right. like a community meeting place for you know for us and for listeners and for anyone to sort of get involved with it. So uh, if you have any suggestions, we'd love uh, love love to get some feedback, emails. Uh, the link is on the website itself. It's just www.conspiranormal.com. It's really easy to find. 
Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what else we should put on there, what you'd like to see. And that's C-O-N-S-P-I-R-I-N-O-R-M-A-L. That's right, just like the podcast. I mean, I'm sure if you put like the A in the middle, sometimes people put the make the mistake and put conspira with the right. A in the middle instead of the I, it'll probably still pop up. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a big deal, uh, I think, for me because having Richard Dolan on, I had uh, remembered seeing him on a show called Sci-Fi Investigates. Hmm. I think it ran for like six six episodes, and it was him and couple other people and there was like Boston Rob Marciano or some guy like that. Some uh, some reality show star of the time around like 2006. And I remember that him and Richard would always get into it on the show and argue because <laughs> Boston Rob apparently didn't believe that UFOs were not real. Uh, I think right now we're going to call it. Yeah, because we are going to be talking to another guest here and Next time on Conspiranormal, Normal, we're going to have on another person we met at Paradise Symposium and that I've actually gotten lucky enough to hang out with down where he lives in Atlanta named Randall Carlson. And we're going to talk to Randall about, well, what are we not going to talk to him about? Procession, sacred geometry, uh, Atlantis, ice ages, comets, math, all, math <laughs> which always confuses me, all that good stuff. And we will be talking to... Randall, and you'll be hearing it next week. And we may not, we may or may not be talking to him in the next uh, 10 minutes. So, <laughs> on that note, we're going to close out the show. And Luke, is there anything you want to add? I'm Pokemon. Yeah, he's out playing Pokemon, so we won't even worry about it. But he may or may not be here for the next show. So, <laughs> all right, guys, thank you very much. And we will see you next time on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.